Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Our sermon this morning is from Acts 21. We'll turn there in just a moment, Acts 21. But first, we're going to read from Job chapter 1 to provide a little context for what is happening in Acts 21. I'm going to read from verse 13 down to verse 22. Job chapter 1, verses 13 through 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, and took them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Amen. Job had what we would call the worst day ever. In swift succession, his herds were stolen by the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans. His flocks, by contrast, were struck with lightning and burned up. I don't even know if that's like a thing. Does that happen to shepherds? Your flocks are on the hillside and all of a sudden they're struck by lightning. There's a tremendous movement of the hand of God made most clear in the fourth manifestation of suffering. Not only was there fire from heaven to consume the flocks, but there was a wind. The Hebrew word is spirit. Spirit or wind that stirred across the face of the wilderness and strikes the four corners of the house, taking all his sons and daughters at once. Job, bereft of his life's work, bereft of all his children, his future, bereft of everything for which he has loved and labored, tears his clothes, shaves his head, and worships. You see, he finds one thing left worth holding on to. 
He says, naked I came and naked I will go. But there is one thing in life that I have found that is worth holding on to. At the end of verse 21, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord's name was enough. He's lost everything else, but I have the name of my God. With that in mind, turn to Acts chapter 21. We're continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts. We've reached chapter 21. Paul is about to arrive in Jerusalem, even as we shall see this morning. The end of his third missionary journey, he has planted churches throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He's planted churches throughout Macedonia, northern Greece, and throughout Greece itself. He is at last coming home to Jerusalem before he plans to launch out into the far west, first to Rome and then to Spain. Here we read Acts 21, his final leg of his journey to Jerusalem. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. 1 through 16. Here again the word of the Lord. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manasin of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. Amen and amen. We readily recognize in adoption as well as in wedding that there will be a name change. The children who are adopted put off the name of their birth 
and put on the name of their adopted parents. Likewise, very often, the wife in her wedding will put off the name of her birth and put on the name of her husband. What we don't so readily recognize is the similarity between our baptism and adoption and marriage. I just had my reading week, right? 1,300 pages on baptism. You were bound to get something about baptism today. Friends, when we, over the last year and a half, brought forward child after child after child, has anyone kept count? And got them wet in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we were marking for them their place in the bride of Christ. We were marking for them their adoption into the family of God. We were putting upon those children the triune name of the living God. We baptize in that name. And friends, according to the text in front of us, you were given the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus gave you his name. And because this is true, you should give him your life. The call to us in this text is to surrender our lives to Christ and to live devoted to his good and glory and not our own. Dear friends, Jesus gave you his name. Give him your life. Now let's think about this a little bit as we go through our text. Notice first of all with me that in verses 1 through 4, Luke records port by port Paul's journey along the coast of Asia Minor. In chapter 20, Paul has said farewell to the Ephesian elders in the city of Miletus. He makes a one-day trek across the waters just off the coast of Turkey to Kos. The following day, he makes a one-day trek to Rhodes. On the third day, he arrives at Patera. And then they set off, keeping Cyprus to their right, that is, they go left of it, staying closer to the coastland, where the water is a little easier on the boat. And they arrive then in Phoenicia, specifically the port city of Tyre. This little record of their journey strikes us as a historian's sense of accuracy without a theologian's sense of, of significance. But this is not so. Like so many things in the scriptures, recording these little bumps along the road has for us true meaning and value. Do you remember? Paul's in a hurry. Paul is trying to get to Jerusalem on time. He has a date with destiny and he doesn't want to be late. And yet, what do we find in verse 4? They arrive at Tyre, unload their cargo, and stay with the disciples seven days. In spite of Paul's focus on getting to Jerusalem, in spite of Paul's intense resolve to get where he is trying to go, he is also content to take one day at a time. He wants to get to Jerusalem, but for now, he'll get to Kos, and Rhodes, and Padera, and Tyre. 
And even then, when he gets to Tyre, he'll take a week off. And he'll hang out with the disciples. Friends, we live in a really busy city. You've heard me speak of this before. I love to be busy. So many of you. We love to be busy. Calendars full, schedules full, inbox full. Oh, to let the world know we are important. We are valuable. We are wanted. We are desired. Paul has embraced a life of being unbusy. He has embraced a life in which one day's work is enough for one day. And then he's content to stop and put in at port. Friends, how do we cultivate a heart of unbusyness? A willingness to do one day's work one day at a time. To pray as Jesus taught us, give us this day our daily bread. And once he's given it, to go home and eat it. Rather than to continue to strive and to struggle against our problems. Friends, there is a quietness of heart that we need to cultivate and to stir up. A contentedness with Christ that allows us to know who we are so that we are not enslaved to the idolatry of this age, to the idolatrous ping of the phone that says, give me attention, give me attention, give me attention. The constant, incessant call of fellow humans and constant technology wars against the quiet, patient spirit to which Christ has called us and in Christ which we possess. Do you know who you are? Do you know who your master is? Is it this device? Is it your job? Is it your ego? Is it your self-respect and self-worth? We are in a world ready to feed us all kinds of gods and masters. But will we resist and be unbusy? I know who my master is. His burden is light. His yoke is easy. I don't need to be hurried or worried. My friends, such peace settles into the soul when we grasp with resolve the singular purpose for which God made us. We see this in the Apostle as he arrives in Tyre. Notice in verses 4 and 5, the disciples of Tyre with whom Paul stays for seven days pray with him. And as they pray with him, they become persuaded that the Holy Spirit would not have him go up to Jerusalem. This is a stunning turn of phrase in verse 4. They tell Paul in the Spirit, through the Spirit, do not go up to Jerusalem. This is stunning because Paul in the previous two chapters was resolved in his spirit to go up to Jerusalem. Does the Spirit give two different messages? Who's right? Well, it seems that probably what the Spirit revealed to the disciples is that if Paul went up to Jerusalem, he would suffer and maybe even die. And like good Americans, we conclude from that information that he shouldn't go. Because suffering is a sure sign Jesus doesn't want you there. But it is not so. This is how we think. This is how the disciples of Tyre think. The Spirit reveals to us there will be sorrow. There will be sadness. There will be suffering. And so we go, ah, we must not want us to go there then. And it is not so. No, they don't even discuss it in verse 5. They simply go down to the beach. 
Paul and all his companions gathered round him. The disciples of Tyre bring their wives and their children. The full fellowship of the church is there on the beach. And again, like with the Ephesian elders, they kneel down in the sand. And as the waves roll up and lap on the shore, they begin to pray. They pray and send Paul and company forward. In verse 6, they take leave of one another. They board the ship and the others return home. Like the Ephesian elders, the disciples of Tyre recognize the resolve of the Apostle Paul. He will not be diverted from his purpose. He will advance to Jerusalem. He will arrive. Their pleas fall on deaf ears. Their prayers for his safety, we don't know. What will the Lord do? As they are there on the beach bidding farewell to the Apostle Paul, watching him board the ship, they do not know if they will ever see him again. There's that fear in the heart, that lump in the throat, as they recognize this may be goodbye until the new heavens and the new earth come down with the new Jerusalem. But they recognize something in the resolve of the Apostle Paul. He knows what Christ would have him do. He knows what that day is for. He knows what his purpose is. And my friends, I wonder if you do. Have you yet grasped that thing that will draw you out of bed every day? Have you yet grasped Christ's call for your life? This is why he made me. That famous quote from Chariots of Fire, when I run, I feel his pleasure. Friends, do you find in your life that thing that says, I was made for this? I suggest to you it's not as subjective as you think it is. Indeed, it's revealed to us in the text. But I'll get to that later. For now, dear friends, let us find resolve. Let us believe that the ability to say no, the ability to be unbusy, the willingness to walk quietly in a world full of roar and chaos is found in a conviction, I know who I am and I know why I'm here and I know what I'm doing. I have purpose and I have resolve from that purpose. Paul then continues his journey to Caesarea. This, the big port city that is established for Jerusalem. Jerusalem being inland cannot be reached by boat, but instead they come to the great Roman city of Caesarea. And there Paul exhibits the same unhurried hurry. He is hastening to Jerusalem, but this is the most unhurried hastening I have ever seen. He gets to Caesarea But first he stops in Ptolemais. This is the other port side of the Caesarean Bay. And there he stays another day greeting the brethren. What is more, in verse 8, they go up in companions to Caesarea in order to stay at the house of Philip. And notice what it says there in verse 10 at the very beginning. And as we stayed many days. Have you ever met somebody like Paul? In a hurry, in so much of a hurry that he stays a whole week at Tyre, he stays one day at Ptolemais, and he stays many days in Caesarea because he's in a hurry. It's like the line from, what is it, Pride and Prejudice, where the father says it, 
I needed to answer in a hurry, so I answered it two weeks later. There is such a hurry to his life that he spends many days in Caesarea. There is such a quietness to his soul, such a resolve. I will go where I am going. I will not stop, but I also will not hurry. He is content to move steadily and stably. Now notice, though, in Caesarea, he surrounds himself with his companions and enters the house of Philip the Evangelist. By entering into this hospitality, he enters into the care of a man of some renown. He was one of the seven, do you remember from Acts chapter 6, one of the first deacons elected. He's put off that office and he has become an evangelist. He was the one that baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. He was the one carried by the Spirit to Azotos from Gaza. This is an extraordinary man who experienced extraordinary blessing from God. And he has there in verse 9, four virgin daughters. Now the Greek verb that Luke uses here, who prophesied, does not suggest that they normally prophesied. But rather, the tense of the verb suggests that they began to prophesy upon Paul's arrival. So just as Paul, arriving in Tyre, had an audience who wished in the Spirit to keep him from Jerusalem, it appears here in the house of Philip, there are four virgin daughters to prophesy and perhaps to persuade him not to go up to Jerusalem. I'm not sure what their message was. Luke doesn't say. He simply says that they became prophetesses upon Paul's arrival and begin to speak to him in the word of the Lord. Perhaps it's the exact opposite. Perhaps they encouraged him and strengthened him to persist in this ministry that he intended to fulfill. Either way, what we see is that Paul is willing to take time for friendship and for fellowship. Just as he was willing to do one day's work, one day at a time, sailing from port to port until he got to his destination, even more so here in verses 7 through 9, we see Paul's willingness to be devoted to the welfare and company of one another, to enjoy the hospitality of Philip, to greet the brethren's, the brethren in Ptolemaeus, to delight in the virgin daughters of Philip as they prophesy and speak the word of the Lord. He's in a hurry to Jerusalem. He's resolved. He will go to Jerusalem. But he is also not in a hurry. Willing to delight in the comfort of his friends and fellow believers. Beloved, are we so hardworking that we haven't the time or energy to be deep loving. Of all the things that fill your schedule, is having fun one of them? Of all the things that overwhelm your days and your weeks, is it spending time with one another that appears? Paul is drifting toward death, and no one can shake him from that purpose. Nevertheless, he is also willing to take time to put up his feet, to surround himself with friends, and to enjoy their company. Are we this kind of congregation that we embrace this view of life that says, I want people around me in this fellowship of the saints, 
That even as I journey towards certain death and to severe suffering, I am willing to put off the weight, the stress, the strain, and embrace the immediacy of companionship. The hour of quiet with company. Have we room in our hearts and in our homes to be alone? Have we room in our hearts and in our homes to be alone with each other? To delight in the fellowship of the saints. Well, the Apostle Paul, he has already shown his resolve. Resisting one attempt to keep him from Jerusalem. Now he must resist another. Having come to Caesarea without haste, having surrounded himself with good friends, he now finds one unexpected visitor. In verse 10, a man named Agabus, who's a prophet, comes down from Judea into Samaria, where there is Caesarea, there on the coast. Agabus, we've met before. He's a prophet who promised the coming famine that is sweeping through the land. So we know he speaks the truth. We know he's a real deal prophet. He's not one of those fake prophets you see on TV who are just asking you for money. No, he's a prophet who speaks the truth. And he walks into Philip's house And there are the four virgin daughters prophesying. There is Philip the evangelist waiting on Paul the apostle. And in walks Agabus the prophet. And he seizes Paul's belt, which, just remember, Paul's not wearing pants. He doesn't have a belt loop. He's got a big long robe and a belt about his waist that is very long and probably wrapped twice around. So it's a different fashion style. It's a little easier to get off. And so he undoes it, he pulls it off. In fact, it's so long that he wraps one end around his wrists and one end around his ankles, and he kind of hogties himself. And he's, he's done up tight. And Agabus looks at him and says, this is what will happen to the man who owns this belt. It's a sure thing, Paul. The disciples entire were right. Through the Spirit, they saw clearly there is suffering for you in Jerusalem There is indeed imprisonment and pain. Agabus prophesies that thus says the Holy Spirit, Paul will most certainly suffer in Jerusalem. At this point, the reserve and the resolve of Paul's traveling companions breaks. The dam bursts and out comes a torrent of emotion. In verse 12, not only are all those of Caesarea, like those of Tyre, beginning to pressure Paul, do not go up to Jerusalem. But Luke notes that even we who traveled with him, even those friends who were his companion in the ministry and in the mission, they were with him in Greece. They were with him in Macedonia. They were with him in Asia Minor. They have suffered with him. They have wept with him. They have served with him. And at last, they cannot bear it. They cannot bear the thought of Paul coming closer and closer to the grave. And they plead with him, do not go up to Jerusalem. This is a furiously intense temptation. Paul would want rightly to set aside the suffering. He would understandably want to assuage the sorrow and the feelings of his friends. But he cannot. But he cannot. No matter how they appeal. No matter what the prophet says. No matter how the friends plead. Paul 
is resolved to Jerusalem. I must go. Do you know this sense of purpose? Do you know this sense of centeredness? I know who I am and I know what I am here to do. And no power or persuasion can change me otherwise. There is a stunning parallel that is starting to emerge. Because Paul is not the first one to go up to Jerusalem to face certain death, is he? Paul is not the first one to go up to Jerusalem with his most beloved friends gathered round him saying, Do not go up. Do you remember Peter? Do you remember where he was when Peter looked Jesus in the eye and said, Lord, you will not go up to Jerusalem and you will not be crucified? He was in Caesarea. And he said to Jesus, You will not go to the cross in Jerusalem. Peter said to him, Get behind me, Satan. For the most evil thing you have ever said was keep me from the cross. In the cross of Christ is salvation for sinners. And so Paul knows the gospel would bid him die. Paul says to them in verse 13, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? What do you hope to gain? Are you going to break my resolve? Are you going to turn me away from the death to which I am called? Would you work against the command of Christ to carry the cross daily? What do you mean by this? That I should not sacrifice myself for the gospel ministry? That I should not serve with every ounce of energy to the final moment to expend every breath? No, he cries in verse 13, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die. I'm ready for shackles and chains. I'm ready for slavery and imprisonment. I'm ready for the suffering. I am ready for death itself. And what is it that has made Paul ready? What is it that has strengthened his resolve to such a degree that no friend, no fellowship, no persuasion, no fear will turn him back. Verse 13. I am ready to suffer and even die for the name of the Lord Jesus. I have a name. I have a name that is worth shackles and chains. I have a name that is worth imprisonment and pain. I have a name that is worth death itself. I am ready. I have the name. Now on the one hand, the Apostle Paul clearly is thinking that this is the name that is above every name. The name at which knees will bow and tongues will confess that Jesus is Lord. Clearly the superlative majesty of his name is on his mind. But so too the Apostle Paul is very likely thinking, this is the name by which men must be saved. This is the name that means he saves. This is the name on which we call when we wish to be saved. This is a name glorious in majesty and a name abundant in grace. But I think even more so, the Apostle Paul is clearly thinking of the name of the Lord Jesus as his union with Christ. 
Why would you weep and break my heart and tell me to be something I'm not? I am a little Christ. He set his face as flint to go to Jerusalem. He was not ashamed to bear my cross, and I will most certainly bear his. He was not ashamed to take my sin, to take my guilt, and I will most certainly without shame take his name. It is the name of the Lord Jesus that has made Paul who he is. I am Christ and he is mine. It is no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. When they say to them, to Paul, what about self-preservation? He says, what self? There's no one left to preserve. For I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There is a name of the Lord Jesus and that's my name. There's no Paul left to save. There's no Paul left to protect. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. And my friends, this is what was born in you when you were baptized. Amen. He set his name on you and said, this is mine. And gave you a reason to live. Far more, he gave you a reason to die. My friends, daily we die to ourselves. They come to the Apostle Paul and say to him, Would you go up to Jerusalem and die? And he says, What's the difference between that and what I did yesterday? I died yesterday. I might as well die tomorrow. What's the difference? Daily I crucify myself and live to Christ. Daily I adopt the new identity that is found in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is this, my friends, what is beating in your heart this morning, pulsing in your mind? I know who I am. I am Christ. And I know I am here to be adopted in Him, to be possessed by Him, and to serve Him, to live for Him. So in verse 14, He would not be persuaded. For how could you possibly argue with that? I am Christ. I have been baptized into Christ. That is who I am. I will carry a cross. I will go up to Jerusalem. They could not argue with this. They could not unseat his identity in Christ, his union with Christ. They could not overthrow the rule of Christ over his heart and mind. He would not be persuaded. So they ceased and said, The Lord's will be done. Because what does every son and daughter of the king want in their life? To do the will of their Father in heaven. What did Jesus say the night in which he was betrayed when he was in Gethsemane? And the last gasp of his human will was to be brought into conformity to his divine will. The will he had with his father from the beginning. He prayed in Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. And at last there in the house of Philip in the city of Caesarea, Paul has taught the disciples to pray with him. The will of the Lord be done. May the will of the Lord be done. 
And it is. And it is. Verse 15 and 16, they pack up and go to Jerusalem. Jesus was determined in the days of his flesh to advance to Jerusalem and to die on the cross and no one would keep him from his hour. No one. Paul, in like manner, knew who he was, united to Christ, bound to carry a cross like Christ, willing to suffer, willing to die. And my friends, this is the same road we are called to walk. To believe that Jesus has given us his name, that he has adopted us. His father is my father. He is my brother. His spirit is my spirit. I was baptized into him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I have unity with the Trinity, bound to them, wearing his name. This is who I really am. He's given me his name. And so, I'm willing to give my life. Is this true? Is this who you are? Is this how you'll live this week? This afternoon? Knowing who you really are. You are Christ's. He has given you his name. He has adopted you. He has wedded you. He has given you his name. Give him your life. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you are our Father. We're not orphans, we're not enemies, we're not strangers. We're the sons and daughters of the great high king. Loved from the foundation of the world. Loved from the cross of Christ. Filled with a spirit of love. That we should come out of darkness into your marvelous light. And we give you thanks, O God, that you have spoken to us clearly today. That you have given us a new name your own name. You have given to us a new family, your family. That you have given us a new identity in Christ, that we are a new creation in him. And we give you thanks, O God, that you have spoken clearly to us and have commanded us to live this new life, to put off sin and selfishness, to take up a cross and to lay down a life and to find that in such self-denial, in such self-sacrifice, there is life everlasting. Oh, Father, we give you thanks for this sweet salvation in Jesus and pray that you would now bind these truths to our hearts and our minds, that we might live them with joy and with love. For these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.